the theme song for this protest is that classic, <laughs> Tim, that you know by Twisted Sister, we're not going to take it. I hope they've checked the copyright, Fred. We can Australianify the song to get around any copyright issues. We're not going to cop it. Do you want to take this opportunity to actually say sorry for the mistakes you've made as Prime Minister? Well, thanks for the question. small fringe minority who are on their way to Ottawa or who are holding unacceptable views uh, that they're expressing. We come from communist country and we came here because we didn't want to have oppression. We wanted to live in a free country and for the last two years we're living like prisoners. Welcome to another edition of the Six O'Clock Swill with Tim Blair, Fred Paul, me Nick Cater and the return of our good old friend Simon Collins from his COVID fishing trip to the UK. But first, the big news this week, of course, is that Neil Young and Joni Mitchell have withdrawn their music from Spotify uh, because Spotify carries the Six O'Clock Swill. I think it also carries a show by Joe Rogan that they're not too happy with. <laughs> what do we think? Um, so far, Spotify hasn't crumbled, hasn't thrown us off. But uh, how should we respond, Tim? It's us or them. I'm laying down the law on this one. I'm drawing a line in the sand. Now, mm-hmm. Spotify's got a hard call to make here. They can either keep this Rogan bloke or we're out. <laughs> and if, if that doesn't work, we've got other demands. <laughs> I think it's, it's us or they get rid of all pre-electric Bob Dylan. Very good, very good. And we're prepared to negotiate on that. I'd, if I was to negotiate and they, they, were, they made things difficult, I'd say pre and post. <laughs> Would that sweeten the deal for us or them? I, I'm not sure. See, I'm, see, that's the difference between you and me. I'm prepared to compromise. <laughs> I'm, I'm prepared to just, you know, everything from everything before Newport, kill all that. <laughs> And and we're prepared to remain on Spotify, you know. But but you, you're a hard liner, Fred. It, it gets this is why you get in trouble all the time. You, you're not prepared to yield even a bit. <laughs> I take the Donald Trump strategy to uh, to negotiating. If you're not prepared to walk <laughs> away from the deal, you're not negotiating. You take it a step further. Your your initial initial step is walking away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very impressed by it. You you're actually. You're out Donalding the Trumpster. <laughs> well, look, I, I agree. Look, any early, early 60s folk music must go. Peter, Paul and Mary must be off yep. Spotify immediately. We're going to have to have footnotes to this episode explaining to everyone under 40 who the hell we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, indeed. You know, what about Melanie Safka? Let's get rid of her or that one song of hers. <laughs> and that song, um, Don't Worry, Be Happy, always makes me angry, that song. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, it makes me very unhappy, that song. Do you remember there was a follow-up of that song on The, um, on the Simpsons of, uh, of Bobby McFerrin's song called I'm Worried, Need Money? <laughs> Should we exclude all of Paul McCartney's material or just from the Wings era? We've just lost, I think, a, a valuable listener in the form of Rowan Dean, who's, um, who's now crying in a fetal position on the floor. <laughs> which, which era is Marlov Kintyre from? Because we could, we could lose that one. That's definitely the Wings okay. era, yes. Right. Very, very definitely. Maxwell's Silver Hammer would probably have to go as well. Well, in a way, though, 
isn't Joe Rogan proving to be the the a sort of a self-cleansing apparatus for Spotify. He's getting rid of all these relics. As um, I think Stephen L. Miller on Twitter said, we've finally found a way to break the boomers. Joe Rogan's found the code. Yes. <laughs> and it's, so the dominant cultural force of the last 50 years, uh, it's been snapped by a guy who um, just asks questions. This is a, a, a tectonic plate-shifting moment. That's a, that's a very heavy handed way of saying that, that this is a big moment because it seems to me that this is the moment when independent digital media starts to demonstrate the amount of power that it now has 11 million vi- viewers and listeners to joe rogan 20, they pay him 22 million us a year and in a showdown between him neil young and Joni mitchell it, it's no contest i mean they may eventually buckle as the pressure builds uh, but, you know, traditional media is hurting and uh, the whole woke mm. community is hurting because they can't influence this stuff, or they try, but, you know, you can knock down Joe Rogan and it'll pop up somewhere else. I think you're being a bit optimistic there, Nick. Um, I- I'm not sure Spotify's record in this department is, in, is entirely unblemished, to be honest. Um, I think it has responded in the past to pressure uh to get rid of um, conservative voices. They, they brought Rogan on as a very strategic uh, mm. deal. How long ago was it? About a, a year ago now? Ago. Maybe a bit more? Yeah. It was one of the biggest deals in, in, you know, for an individual uh, content producer in media history. But <clears throat> they, they obviously saw that, that Rogan was a good vehicle on which to build the empire. But that doesn't mean necessarily that they believe entirely in what he's doing. And the other development this week, as you know, is that the White House is now pressuring or expressing uh, the, uh, um, the desire that's, that Spotify should bring Rogan to heel. And uh, who knows if they will? I mean, you know, this is the White House that's coming down on Spotify. Time will tell what what uh, what the result will be, but... And Joe Biden's even older than Neil Young, isn't he? Joe <laughs> Biden's even older than Neil Young. I, I think, did he support Neil Young at Woodstock? He might have been... He was the warm-up. The, the normalisation of censorship is something I think has occurred because of COVID, because um, they, the, the woke left um, uh, and the establishment in the US, the medical establishment, have been successful in shutting down and censoring so much uh, material under the guise that it is misinformation now it's becoming normal right there's nothing there's nothing wrong with uh, with, with if anything useful has come out of this this period of censorship that we're living through um it was explained really well by tucker carlson the other day he said weak people are afraid of other people's opinions if you're afraid of other people's opinions or or if you're not afraid of other people's opinions, generally you have a strong character and you're confident in your own opinions. So censorship reveals your character. And if, you are, uh, if you're censorious, then according to Tucker Carlson, I've got to agree, it just means you're weak. This is, that's a fascinating point. And you see it often in, um, in the assumptions built into uh, complaints about, say, Fox News or News Corp in general. You'll hear people, a lot of them in the ABC, saying that um, uh, Murdoch and uh, and Fox News poison 
uh, the populace with their terrible, you know, terrible opinions. Well, how come it's not affecting those people? They're hearing them all the time. <laughs> yet yet they, they remain magically immune as though they've had their, you know, their Murdoch boosters. Yeah, it's like, the, um, it's like the magic powers they have when it comes to dog whistling. A dog whistle is meant to be something yes. that other people can't hear. But magically... It's not, they're not being whistled to, but they can hear it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kerry O'Brien, the Media Watch host, yeah. probably consumes more News Corporation output than any other human being in Australia. Yet he's still a communist. <laughs> Work that out. <laughs> his powers of immunity, mate. I bet he's never caught COVID either. He's on to his 15th booster <laughs> shot. The man's, the man's a walking Pfizer stick. <laughs> the um, the I think we're seeing the uh, this reflected over here, of course, as you'd expect. Uh, and I was at the National Press Club on Tuesday to hear the Prime Minister, and uh, as expected, I mean, he might as well have stood up there and read two pa- pages of the Canberra phone directory for all the media took any notice of him. They they seem to be ignoring his speech altogether, uh, just waiting for the moment when they could stand up and ask impertinent, crass gotcha questions at him, uh, which then became the story. So you said you were in uh, Canberra on Tuesday to see Scott Morrison. Mm. I thought there was a Laura Tingle show. I, I, I didn't I don't remember an appearance <laughs> from this, this, this Morrison fellow of whom you speak. He's got a small walk-on role after Laura Tingle's endless question. Tingle was, was is a master of this this crass, impertinent genre of questions, and totally meaningless and irrelevant to what's happening in the rest of Australia. You know, all this. Will you apologise for? And then a long uh, catalogue of presumed errors to which the Prime Minister humbly uh, tried to address, uh, and then she follows up with, "Well, I take it you will not apologise." Look, that surely is one of the just one of the the, 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 I don't know, one of the most least original tricks in the journalistic book, isn't it? He refused to apologise. It's a common preconception of, of some lefty journalists that politicians, their, their primary role is to apologise for various things. But sadly, Nick, um, Scott Morrison's fallen for this. He actually did apologise during that speech. Tell me if I'm reading too much into this. He said, I want to thank Australians. You've put up with a lot. And my ears pricked up when he said that because he used the word you. He was subconsciously, in my opinion, uh, revealing the fact that he was a member of the elite that imposed all this draconianism on the, or these draconian measures on the Australian population, but excluded himself from those who had endured it. So there was, there was no we, it was you. It's not we. And uh, funnily enough, I went and had a look at some of uh, Dan Andrews' um, uh, performances in this genre of political delivery, and, <laughs> and he's very careful. He always says, we did this and we did that. Well, he's got more practice of being a collectivist, you know. Well, Stalin never said we, mate. Come on. So now we've established that the entire mainstream media, plus Fred Paul, is gunning for Scott Morrison uh, in an election year, Do, does it? Does it? The quick, my question I want, is: I want him. I want Morrison off Spotify. <laughs> but does it matter? Will it stop Morrison getting his point of view across? Now, here's an interesting thing: uh, if you go back to the 2013, uh, let's go back further, 1969 election, 
63% of Australians got news from election news from TV and 55% from newspapers. Last time around, those figures were 22% for TV and 11 for newspapers. But in number one spot, 26%, the internet. And, and it's going to be even more this time. Specifically TikTok. <laughs> election coverage on TikTok. Yes, of course, but you've got, you know, you've got YouTube, you've got social media. Basically, mainstream media does not control the agenda in the way it once did. It is becoming more irrelevant. It's becoming more shrill and making itself more irrelevant by talking about totally work concerns. Meanwhile, our good friend Alan Jones is out there doing his own little Joe Rogan. So Jones Rogan. <laughs> the opportunities are there for the centre right if they want to take them. Oh, can I just can I just segue into a little TikTok anecdote that I saw during the week? Yes. This is interesting. There's a really there's a there's a fairly good comedian out of New York called called Andrew Schultz. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of him. Uh, he's 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 mostly a kind of vulgar stand up comedian, but he's got a, a half decent Instagram feed which I look into. And every now and again, he segues into a into something serious. And he said during the week that in China, on TikTok, the types of content that are rewarded with prominence and lots of likes and and e- easily wide distribution are things to do with good behavior and education so if you post a story about how you, you you did well in your engineering exams on tiktok in china it will be widely distributed and encouraged and lots of people will like it meanwhile tiktok controlled by the chinese in the west the the type of content that's rewarded is you know i've got false eyelashes and i can dance in a bikini <laughs> yeah i got huge numbers for that it was unreal <laughs> What sort of um? I mean, is it is it tied in China to your social credit score? Well, po- possibly, but I, the, I think the bigger picture is that this is Chinese soft diplomacy or soft cultural influence at an alarming scale because you know they are that they they're influencing the next generation of Westerners mm. to behave like pathetic narcissists. They've already taken out the the older generation by turning them into a bunch of neurotics about the flu i wonder i wonder what the score they gave to the guy who invented covid he must be off the charts <laughs> he's like the biggest champion of all china yeah imagine his tiktok video oh, i put the i put these two test tubes together and kaboom bye bye california the first person to like it was anthony fauci <laughs> who funded it On the subject of COVID, moving north of the border to Canada uh, and the big trucking rally, we have ourselves a convoy. Tim drew my attention to this little bit of uh, reportage from the trucking convoy. First of all, do you need to explain the context of this or do we just play it, Tim? No, I can I can give you some background on this. Um, so about a 70-kilometre long convoy of trucks descended on the Canadian capital of Ottawa. And... Um, they're having a great time. They're they're not going anywhere. They've uh, they're they're digging in for the long haul. They insist that uh, Justin Trudeau, who's now in hiding, claiming to have COVID, uh, <laughs> they they want him either to go or for all the uh, the vaccine mandates to be repealed, because that's what's hurting these truckers. They can't cross borders and so on, and um, 
they're losing losing business and money. So they're all in Ottawa. They've got a lot of support nationally. And at one point, um, a bunch of women turned up. They'd driven six hours in the snow from Toronto, and they'd just brought the odd one or two pieces of uh, pieces of sustenance just to get the truckers through. And I think we've got audio of that now. We have. Because we stand behind them. We come from communist country and we came here because we didn't want to have oppression. We wanted to live in a free country. And for the last two years, we're living like prisoners. We are being told to stay at home. Uh, we're told not to go to the restaurant, not to go to the church. I mean, this is unbelievable. During communism times, we were able and free to go to the church. And there were times over here where where we couldn't. So I, I really can't can take it anymore. Sobering, isn't it? Really sobering. Polish immigrants, they've come from, as they point out in that clip, we are from communist country. It tends to give you a, a bit of perspective on when you're being, you know, when you're being bossed around by uh, tyrants. And uh, the support uh, for, the, for the truckers is immense. By the way, if you want another measure of the support, it's not just people showing up with food and uh, delicious Polish vodka. Uh, a GoFundMe account was set up and uh, eventually frozen by GoFundMe. I think they've begun returning donations because, you know, truckers are the bad guys as, as, as uh, GoFundMe sees it. But uh, that wasn't a small uh, fundraiser, $10 million. That's going to keep uh, wow. truckers... Uh, in their encampments in Ottawa, going for some time. You know what? Uh, you know what I like about this is that the the theme song for this protest is that classic <laughs> Tim that you know by Twisted Sister. We're not going to take it. There was an ob- oblique reference to that in, in that uh, in that little sound grab as well. I hope they've checked the copyright, Fred. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Quite common at the at protests in Australia. For people to sing, you're the voice. Yeah. You know, Johnny Farnham's You're the Voice. It's funny how these songs ha- have been um, superimposed on these situations and seem strangely appropriate. But the word is, at this protest that I was at, the, the MC at the event um, said, we've, had, we've been advised by Johnny Farnham's uh, manager that we're not allowed to sing this, but he uttered a few expletives and said, we're going to sing it anyway. And the whole crowd loved it. You know, it's funny how, how good that song is as a protest song. No, I would actually protest the, that song. <laughs> oh, you're the voice, team. Come on. <laughs> but you've got to say, as a protest song, it beats Mull of Kintyre, it, surely. Well, yeah, it that, that, that really, really roused the troops you know at WW2 a few rousing <laughs> choruses of Mull of Kintyre. By the way, this protest you're at, you're very nonspecific about it. Was it just a general protest against stuff? No, it, no, no, no. It was an anti-mandates protest out at Strathfield in Sydney a couple okay. of weeks ago. Yeah, another, another development that you guys might have noticed is that Jimmy Barnes is no longer the hero of the working class man anymore. I mean, at, at events like that, it used to be Kaysan right, was the yeah. go-to. But Jimmy Barnes is such a member of the asshole woke <laughs> these days 
But um, working class men don't uh, don't identify with him anymore. It's funny how much Kaysan has actually disappeared from our from our cultural provenance. I well, think. I think Don Walker, the songwriter in Cold Chisel, is much more on the side of the angels than uh, than woke Jimmy. Yes, yes, absolutely. Woking class man. <laughs> well, the other impressive thing about let me just go get back to Canada and, and another impressive element of this. Remember during all the um, Black Lives Matter protests in the US in 2020, at one point uh, they took over various inner cities, places like Portland, Oregon, and these were going to be alternative communities where uh, you know things would be run peacefully and 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 in the spirit of uh, of love. Of course, they immediately turned into drug slums where people were raped and murdered. At one point, I think um, one of these communities attempted to plant a vegetable garden on a city roundabout and wondered why it wasn't working. Well, if you've got no functioning knowledge of agriculture beyond dope plants (laughs) on your windowsill, you are going to struggle a bit. By contrast, the truckers in Ottawa are actually creating buildings. They've got lumber, they've got tools... They're building structures in parks. They're actually making the place better, and uh, that's that's what you know. If you if you're handy on the tools, you're always going to beat those stupid BLM halfwits who don't know how to handle a wrench. And instead of pulling down statues, they were gathering around them, weren't they? Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was fantastic, and and it's 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 become known online as the honkification of Ottawa because the truckers are blowing their horns throughout the day and sometimes deep into the night and it's uh it's a it's a beautiful sound and um well at least at this remove certainly one or two <laughs> ottawa residents are getting a bit jack of it but um you know i think someone said to me the other day oh yeah blair you know you say this is such a great protest how would you like it if you know thousands of truckers showed up outside your front door and began blowing their horns and i'm like well luckily i avoided that by taking the sensible precaution of never living in ottawa I've, I've so far managed it for 56 years. Vaccine mandates, uh, Fred, you, you, you've been protesting against them. You, you probably have caught the news that in two European countries now, they are the law for adults. That's uh, Austria and Italy. Uh, meanwhile, in Denmark, they've removed all restrictions whatsoever, and I think they've done the same in Sweden. And, and so it's, in Scandinavia, it's it's a complete, considerably different attitude. But this idea that you get fined, I think, €14,000 if you don't take the two doses in Austria. What, what have Austria and Italy got in common? They were both Axis powers in World War II. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's got a horrible ring to it to me. Does anybody feel as, well, you obviously do, Fred, feel as strongly against this vaccine mandate as I do? I, I do. I, a friend of mine's just back from Italy, actually, and, and he said that as far as the masks go, in, in typical Italian style, they, they wear it uh, just, for, just to comply, um, but they, they never wear it. No one ever wears them seriously. Mm. I mean, one of the alarming things about Australia is um, that people, you know, not only are they are they happy to comply, but the way they wear them is just so, you know, fully to the rules. I mean, whenever I put a mask on, I mean, I probably look a bit ridiculous, but I just I just wear it like, you know, just across the, I scrunch it up and put it across the least of my mouth as possible, <laughs> just to make it look. As so you're you're fu- you're fulfilling the legal 
It's like how in the 1960s, when the Hells Angels were becoming something, they didn't like rear vision mirrors on their bikes. They thought they made the bikes look stupid. So they would remove the rear vision mirrors, which typically either side of the handlebars. And of course, you know, they'd get uh, pulled over by the police and, uh, and fined for not having a safe vehicle. So one or, one or two of the more intelligent Hells Angels, i.e., you know, those who could read, discovered that the law didn't have a minimum size for those rear vision mirrors. So Hells Angels began installing uh, dentist's mirrors. You know, the tiny <laughs> ones they stick inside your mouth? Yeah. Those were their rear vision <laughs> mirrors. And uh, the police were powerless. I mean, the letter of the law, I mean, it could have been even smaller than one of those dental mirrors. It could have been, you know, one millimetre across, a diameter of, you know, half a millimetre. Still, it's a reflective surface that's mounted in the correct location. It's a good point, Tim, and a good analogy. But just to get back to the Mars thing, one of the other points I try to make when I'm putting, when I'm in a situation where I'm forced to wear one is that I wear them inside out or back Mm. to front and upside down so the little metal clip is under my chin and... (laughs) white bit is facing outwards and i arrived in perth this is a couple of years ago i arrived in perth you know sort of um insolently wearing it exactly the wrong way and the marshal the clipboard wielding marshal at the gate said take that off and made me put on another one the right way around oh, you couldn't even use the same mask no no he made me throw that one away because i'd want you know obviously the you know, the, the particles have been caught on the wrong side and if I turned it turned it around, I'd be, I'd be responsible for a COVID outbreak. But- Was there like a, a whistle on the play, like mask violation, mask violation? <laughs> it is WA, better safe than sorry. Code red, code red. Yeah. Scramble, scramble, scramble. <laughs> but just scramble. back to Nick's point. Sorry, Nick, we got a bit distracted. <laughs> but the, um, I, I, the, the thing about the mandates that I'm worried about is that Greg Hunt has... Uh, has has announced this week that um, that you know nobody's going to be classified as uh, vaccinated unless they get the boosters, and um, I don't think Australians are going to cop that. We're not going to cop it. We can Australianify the, ver- the the song to get around uh, any copyright issues with our friends at Twisted Sister. They've got a bit of form there, though. Right? Yes, Clive Palmer was was sued, wasn't he, for Twisted Sister? That's right. They weren't going to take it. They were actually true to their lyrics. They weren't going to take it at all. No, not from Clive. Now it's our great pleasure to welcome back Six O'Clock Swill regular Simon Collins, who's been on a COVID fishing trip in the UK for what six weeks. Simon, did you did you catch anything? Um, yeah, just I did catch a little, uh, a small a small dose of uh, COVID, um, purely in the interest of research for the swill, of course, just to see whether this uh, Omicron <laughs> or Omicron is as uh, was as, as as bad as the dose of the regular one I had, the Delta, whatever it was, about six months ago. Uh, and um, you know it was all right. So it's your second go. Yeah, you've had it twice. Yeah, I got a, a little bit in here. I got in Australia as well, and I've and I've had both the, the double jab. I haven't had the booster, and luckily that wasn't a requirement of entry in the UK. In fact, the UK seems to have got a lot more relaxed about the whole thing. 
than we are here. Mm. So the, this uh, Omicron variant, you make it sound like a sort of a disappointing second album. Yes. Yeah, it was son of, very much son of. It was, uh, you know, um, uh, and, 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 you know, it's almost, it's, it's quite, it's very hard to walk down the street and not meet somebody who's got it or had it yeah. in, the, in the UK. It's, there's an acceptance there that, you know, why bother? Why bother putting the mask on? You're going to get it anyway. And, and even the authorities don't really police the regulations that are still in place. Not, not where I was. Having said that, I, I was a, a substantial part of the time, not, not, not in London or England, but in, in, in what, I, what, I, what, what the Sydney side of me refers to as Old South Wales. <laughs> and, um, and they have a separate, uh, they have a, the Wales has a separate, it's a bit, the, the, health, the health system in Britain is kind of like a microcosmic reflection of the state government system in Australia. It's actually each, each, each country in the UK has its own, its own health system. And they, they, they exercise what p- pathetic authority they've got just as, just as vigorously and, and, uh, as, as our premiers do, or some of our premiers do. So who would be the equivalent of Western Australia? Which, which part of the UK would be, the, would be handling this stuff the worst? That would be Scotland, right? Oh, well, definitely Wales. Wales. Well, it's, no, Scotland's, Scotland's pretty bad, but um, Wales, uh, I reckon Wales is... Uh, any, any opportunity the Welsh government has to be to show their resentment against the, the English, they always, they always maximise it. They know that, you know, basically, the only, reason, the only reason England ever bothered invading or conquering Wales... They didn't bother for hundreds of years until the Industrial Revolution, when they suddenly needed coal. Uh, until then, they'd had, they couldn't care less about the Welsh. Well, they needed singers at some point. Maybe they needed choirs, you know, the great choirs. great industrial yeah. choirs of the 18th century. Yeah, choirs, and they, were, and, they were, and they were quite good at rugby for a while, and they might still be, who knows? <laughs> So um, you're in this country and COVID is everywhere. You've, you've only got to lick a gatepost to catch it. What do they think about Australia where we've, we've, you know, we've done pretty well keeping out the old COVID, but now, of course, it's running rampant? Well, it's really interesting because I've been, you know, I've been going back to, because of family and things, I've been going back to Australia for 25, 30 years. Sorry, to, to Britain. And, um, and I go all over the place when I, don't, when I go there. And in the in the time I've all the time I've been travelling back to the UK, um, the, the, you know there have been some changes in the in the way the Brits see see Australia and Australians. It's it's been over. It's been until recently it's been overwhelmingly positive, you know, because of because of sometimes hopelessly unrealistic, you know, because we grew up on a diet of Skippy and a lot of them, you know, more recently Crocodile Dundee. There's a persistent idea that Australians are largely a rural society. Um, you know, you're never more than 50 metres away from a crocodile or a snake or a spider or whatever. And then, you know, the, the, the advent of Australian soaps kind of changed that. It was a bit of a shock to the system that we did actually have housing estates here. And But the, but the single event that really started to make people appraise, mm. reappraise Australia was probably the Martin Street siege. But nothing, you know, because prior to that, most people outside Australia didn't think we had even, you know, ethnic populations, let alone terrorist problems. But nothing has changed it like COVID. I mean, even after the bushfires, which got a lot of coverage, people still essentially were, were envious of me living in Australia, you know. As they should be. Uh, there was lots of you lucky bastards. But, but now, because of the coverage, particularly the coverage in, in Victoria, uh, um, 
which has sort of tainted the whole country in because in, most Brits don't really think of Australia as a number of states. They think of it as um, as one country. But what's happened in Victoria and latterly, I suppose, WA has really changed it. I, this time around, I got very few lucky lucky bastards. And, and sometimes there was palpable sympathy that I live in a country where they've seen this appalling sort of 1960s Cold War East East German repression by the government and its and its um, jackbooted police forces. Big t- turnaround, and um, you know we were talking last week to James Morrow, who'd just been back from the States, gave us the uh, situation report for the United States about what they think. He said the big thing was that the crocodile Dundee image of the fearless um, Australian, you know, not worried about danger, wades in there. Is that a knife? All that's disappeared. Was that image as, as strong in Britain? I think so. Well, to, to some extent, they were, they were never quite as naive as the Americans because they got a, they tended to get a better up-close look at us through things like shared sports and, and a lot more kind of, um, you know, uh, relatives living here and, uh, and Im- British immigration. But the, the whole idea of, you know, the kind of the thing that Crocodile Dundee celebrated, the, the kind of the, whether you, could, whether you think it's a, a myth or not, the idea of the laconic laid back Aussie who, who has a healthy disrespect for authority. Um, that's been transplanted now. I mean, that's been, tra- uh, you know, they're, they're, people think of Australia as not just a country where there are <laughs> of 80,000, 80 million um, woolly sheep, but the population is perceived to be incredibly sheep-like as well. I mean, because there's a there, mm. there is a, a view again that the media has that that we've that we've been extremely accepting and obedient, where that, that surprised a lot of people. They thought Australians would stand up to this and, and push back a bit more than perhaps the media has painted it. That's a very good theory, Simon. Very good theory. Close proximity to sheep makes you sheepish. You know, I mean, hence the New Zealanders are even more sheepish still. Well, yeah, well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Simon, we, we like to think that we, you know, much to our chagrin, we like to think that we get some of our, at least some of our sense of humour from, from Britain and from the, the Scots and Irish and, and the uh, ne'er-do-wells who came off the boat on the first fleet. What's the impression in Britain these days? Who... we? Do they see us as more subservient than them now? That would, because if so, that would be pretty embarrassing. If you accept that COVID has been such a dominant component of the world's news for the last two years, and that almost everything now is looked at through a COVID lens, you, you would have to say that you know it, it has modified the British view of the of the average Australian in a way which would have been uh, you know. Unaccept- you know, it would have been unheard of 20 years ago. It seems to have diminished us in the eyes of the Brits. Yeah, but the cricket, the cricket would have changed that. Well, the, interesting enough, but the, <laughs> there you go. There's an example of the COVID lens. Even things like the, 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 uh, the Novak's Djokovic story. Um, you know, I, I remember a few years ago, I was in England not long after um, Barnaby Joyce um, had, 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 had given Johnny Depp and his his dogs marching orders from Queensland, and that was that was viewed as uh, that was viewed in a very positive light by the Brits. They said, "Yeah, we love the way even Australian politicians aren't aren't aren't, aren't sycophantic to to international celebrities." That was that went down very well. This time round with Djokovic, there was a sense of, "Oh yeah, it's another example of a, a, an Australian state 
you know, being repressive and spoiling the fun of things. I mean, there was, yes, yes. I mean, both men broke the law, but there was nothing like the uh, the, the positive feeling for the uh, for the government that there was with the Johnny Depp story. Simon, um, just speaking of speaking of jackbooted authority figures, Simon, what um, what's it like going through airports these days? You know, seeing that so few of us have been through them since all of the COVID madness <laughs> began. Well, as long as you're prepared to carry, uh, you know, a, 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 a small old growth forest's worth of uh, paper documentation, it's not too bad. I had to have, a, you know, coming back was particularly bad. I almost got trapped there. If the Australian government hadn't yeah. lifted, if they hadn't lifted their uh, the demand that you had to have a PCR test before coming back. Because having had COVID, even if you go negative, this PCR test often shows up for months later that you're positive. So luckily, three days before I came back, they changed that to rapid antigen tests. One of the things that my travel agent in Australia told me, she said, hey, there's no, there's none of those tests available here. They're like gold dust. And, and, and one of the good things about the UK is you go to any pharmacy and they'll hand you a stack of them. So I'm going to go I'm going to go onto eBay as a as a as a, a anti as a rapid antigen test um, retailer uh, for the next few months. You're going to be, be one of those. Uh, but those millionaire gougers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've always wanted to be a gouger, either a gouger or a. Or a slumlord. I don't know. Those were the dreams. <laughs> but Boris, Boris is actually, you know, with with all Boris's um, problems at the moment, Partygate and so on. We, we want to hear about Boris and his problems. Tell us more. He's putting a lot of eggs in the in, in the COVID basket. The only good thing he's got going for him at the moment is that Britain, UK did sort of, in terms of Europe at least, uh, Britain was smart enough to be ahead of the curve on vaccinations. So... They, they, and they, and they stocked up on these tests and all that kind of thing. A lot of, a lot of things that, that you know, post Brexit they did, which the EU didn't do, and and there was no, and as an, as as a result, EU is now looking enviously at at, at, at Britain's um, uh, vaccination uh, rate, which is massive, and and also the um, low hospital uh, admissions and all that kind of thing. So given that everything else in his life is falling apart. Boris is hoping that this, that the the success of the of the of the of his containment policies and his control and his vaccination policies, in particular, will will compensate for Partygate. There is actually a feeling that Partygate will blow over, and uh, his his insistence that he's not resigning and that does suggest that he thinks he can he can live it down. What are the polls at the moment between him and uh, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader? What are the polls look like? Well, you know. Keir Starmer um, has had something of a comeback uh, because of, but largely because of because of Boris, and largely because they are the the, the British media or you know, a substantial part of it has picked up the Labour complaint that Boris is a liar. In in some ways, it's a kind of a bigger version of, of what I believe is happening with with Scomo at the moment back here, and and the you know the the the, the fact that when I when I left Australia, um, the Labour the Labour Party here did not look in in the faintest like being winners in the next general election. Well, I've come back and everyone's saying that they're odds-on favourite. Can, can you not leave quite so often then, Simon? It seems that you're, you're, you're causing the problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, your, it's your absence from the swill. Yeah, he can go away and come back and the Greens will be in front. <laughs> yeah, we'll have that, that midget from the Greens will be the pen. <laughs> 
there's actually a very interesting little sideshow to the Australian sideshow to the Boris uh, drama. Um, I, I don't know whether it was picked up here much, but um, you know, there's because because everyone half the half the country saying he should resign, and even half his own party are, are now sort of saying, well, perhaps he should step down. There's this massive debate about who is the the right successor as leader of the Conservative Party, and ergo the next prime minister. And um, the two the two kind of front runners are this guy, you know, you know Rishi Sunak and um, and Liz Truss, the respectively the I think Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Foreign Secretary. But Mark Stein, who's always worth listening to, and has now got a regular mm -hmm. Canadian pundit, he's now on GB News, which has pretty big viewing figures. He, he, while I was there, he came up with the idea. He said, "There's a, there's another great contender for for being prime minister, and, and that, you know, and that's Tony Abbott." And of course, a lot of people yes. went, "Who, who?" But but a lot of Brits, particularly in the Conservative born party, born in the UK, know, knew know exactly mm. who he is, and yeah. and being born in Australia. Well, even if he was born in Australia, it wouldn't debar him, because Australia, uh, sorry, because Britain doesn't have a rule about not like America, where you have to be born in the US. To, to be president, mm -hmm. there, there is a precedent, a precedent of a non non British born Commonwealth um, citizen being uh, prime minister of Britain, 1922. Bona, the strangely named Bona Law, who was the prime minister who succeeded Lord George, was born and raised in Canada. I think it's pronounced Bona Law. Bona Law, Simon. No, I prefer, I prefer, I prefer Bona. It shows think... you've been in Australia too long that you say Bona Law. Was his, was his middle name Four? Anyway, there's a, there's a statue, there's a statute of limitations on correct name pronunciation. You can call them what they like after 50, after, after 50 years. Abbott's a really great call because um, Britain's got similar boat arrival problems now that we had prior to Abbott becoming the Prime Minister in 2013. So, um, right man for the job. Hmm. Well, that's right. He was, I mean, he's, he was appointed a couple of years ago by the Boris administration as post-Brexit trade advisor. Uh, and he's done a very good job and he's made quite a few good speeches. Mm. But, but of course, now they're saying, people like Mark Stein are saying, well, you know what? You know, one of the things that Boris failed to deliver in his Brexit campaign, the promises he made, one of them was, uh, was better control of illegal immigration. Now, I don't know whether you've been aware of it, but even when I was there, there were record-breaking numbers of deaths of yeah. people uh, in the English Channel. And people mm. start saying, people started reprising that, that phrase that you used to hear, Australian-style immigration policies, you know? And, and you know, because there's nothing that more that a lot of conservatives want than the, the turning back of these boats. Um, so, you know... So that's another reason why Abbott has, is, 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 you know, I mean, obviously he's not going to, it would never happen, but it's an interesting sort of idea. Well, the main reason to, for it to happen, quite besides the fact that he'd be an excellent leader and he'd stop the boats because he knows how, the other reason would be just for the global meltdown on the left that would ensue. It'd be brilliant. It'd be wonderful to watch, wouldn't it? Well, the left here would be irate because you'd be <laughs> depriving them. Yeah, I tell you why he'd also. If I was him, if I was Abbott, I would insist at least partly running on the ticket of, this is the man who gave a knighthood to the to the Duke of Edinburgh. That would go down really. Yeah, you're not going to lose yeah. any of your votes in the UK for that. Exactly, it wasn't popular here, but let me tell you, that would that would deliver quite a few north of the red wall voters.
Damn straight. I think we've. I think Mark Stein, as usual, is correct, and you're very um very astute to pick up on it, Simon. I, I I did actually mention this in my column in the Spectator, which I wrote from the UK, and Mark Stein picked up my column and ran it in his news his newsletter. So he's hoping to he's hoping wow. to get some traction. Simon, what's the attitude to vaccines on on the street over there? Um, well, in the part of South Wales where I spent a lot of the time near Newport. When you talk vaccines, you're really only talking heroin. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that Fred thinks there are street vaccines. Just using a, you know, a common variety. Of, I don't go for that Pfizer or Moderna crap. I'm just getting. I'm just going down to get the hard stuff. You know, from my main man. I'm getting some street vaccines. It's, it's not cocaine, officer. It's just it's my Moderna that's been cut. <laughs> Like everything else to do with COVID, the UK seems to be six months or perhaps more ahead. And so they are six months more bored with the whole thing than we are here, I think. But they're not going for the boosters, are they? Not really. Uh, they're not pushing boosters particularly. The government sends everybody letters saying you're entitled to a booster. There are clinics that you can walk into and ask for them. But um, it's by no means uh, you've got to have it or you can't come in. Sounds like a pop song from the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have it or you can't come in. So we're doing advertising. Look, we've got this problem. The, the, the bombs have gone off us a little bit. Uh, how do we get them back? We need their tourist dollars after all, don't we? What's the slogan to get them back? That's a great idea. In fact, I think, you know, I might actually, I might actually proactively approach the Australian Tourist Authority who, who, who routinely get it so horribly wrong and at such enormous cost yeah. when they try and promote us abroad. But that would be a very practical idea, would be to do a campaign that basically tells people, hey, it's okay, you won't get hit on the head by a man with a truncheon if you come to Australia, you know. Well, if you steer clear of Melbourne, I think. <laughs> well, you know, what are you going to do about Melbourne? I've got a few ideas, but they all involve the military. <laughs> In fact, they all involve foreign military. <laughs> Chinese, to be perhaps. <laughs> Amongst ordinary, ordinary Brits, there's very little perception of any threat from China. It's interesting. I, I asked a few people about AUKUS and um, even people I knew with you know, moderately well-educated were, were pretty vague on it. Um, they don't, you know, I guess it's a geographical proximity thing. They don't, you don't hear Taiwan and the possibility of it being invaded discussed all that much over there. It's a different orbit. Another reason why culturally we're drifting further away from Britain and further towards the Yanks, I suppose. But there was a theory that when Britain left Europe, when Brexit occurred, they would come back to their old colonial chums and start trading with us. And uh, I mean, Tony Abbott had a suggestion that, that they take down the sort of two queues in the airport where if you're in Europe, you can go in one. If you're, if you're from Australia, you're going with all the other foreigners and say, no, no, Australians should have a red carpet laid out for mm. them. Is that working? I mean, do they feel, are they coming back some sort of affinity towards Australia? Do they feel... They want to buy our milk and cheese and wine. I don't know. I think the truth about it is that uh, COVID's put a lot of that, a lot of that on hold, uh, and it's mm. you know you get the sense that the government, because of COVID and because of the the travails of, of Boris's existence, they haven't given it as much thought as they they probably would have done, and and as much action as they would have done if it hadn't been for COVID. Um, but you know, having said that, you know. You go, to, you go to the average Sainsbury's in the UK and there are aisles and aisles of Australian wine, which is good. 
that's one definite uh, reason why the, the Brits still uh, think highly of us. Sainsbury's, a supermarket made in the UK, who's recently been banned from Sainsbury's for life. Wow. He and his wife discovered accidentally that if you take, you know, you can run the, there you can run your alcohol through the self-service checkpoints. And, and if you ran a case of Prosecco through and, and scanned it, it would come up the same price as a bottle. <laughs> oh, bargain. So they went back and back and back and back. Half the garage is full of Prosecco, but on his most recent visit, he was pinged, <laughs> had his photo taken and was banned for life from Sainsbury's. I said, well, that's it. You'll never get an Australian visa. That's the first question they ask. Have you ever been banned from Sainsbury's? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they should thank the guy because he's drawn their attention to a problem. If you're, part, if you, if you're in a part of Britain like, like Liverpool, which is famous for its light-fingered population, he's probably saved them long-term a lot of money. And especially, and, and Wales as well. Wales is, you know, Britain Britain tends to get, the Scots tend to get this reputation of being very, very uh, tight-fisted. But I reckon the Welsh are, um, uh, beat them hollow in that respect. I had an auntie, a Welsh auntie, who was so mean when you visited her. She used to gaff, she had the, the handle for her lavatory gaffer taped so you couldn't move it. And if you wanted to use the toilet, you had to use a bucket and, uh, and the water from the last time she had a bath, that was how she flushed the toilet. Because so, she could save on water rates because she had a meter installed. You're reinforcing all my stereotypes about the it's, Welsh here. <laughs> Wales, Wales is a country of outstanding natural meanness. Remember the, the Flanders oh. and Swan uh, song? Uh, I think it was called A Song of Patriotic Prejudice. And, and the, the Welsh... The Welshman is mean and he cheats when he can. He's dark and he's hairy, more monkey than man. He works underground with a lamp in his hat and he sings far too often, too loudly and flat. <laughs> I don't think you can say that kind of thing these days, of course, not even about the Welsh. But look, Simon, it's great to see you back in one piece, having escaped your second bout of COVID and um, got back in the country. So look, all the best and we'll be talking to you again soon. Good to see you guys. Take care. Simon Collins, look, that's the second week we've uh, we've heard accounts from abroad of people decided they don't like Australians very much or don't like Australia very much anymore. Uh, the question is, should we care? Uh, I always remember as a soccer fan, whenever the Millwall fans turned up, they had a, a, a chant to the uh, to the to the tune of Rod Stewart sailing, "We are Millwall, we are Millwall. No one likes us. We don't care." <laughs> Should we worry about what the world thinks about us, or is that the sort of preoccupation of the Guardian readers? You know, when the eyes of the world, Australia looks uh, immoral or tragic or something. I, I always kind of like it when we were when we were called pariahs about things like climate and uh, refugees, and um, I, I preferred it when we were climate pariahs than now because it was better. And uh, on refugees, we, we were always called. Terrible pariahs there, but uh, then half the world adopted our practices. So screw you guys. But uh, yeah, I mean, mm. you know, this concern about what people think of us overseas 
is um, it's not really reflected in any of my experience overseas. I've never had anyone, Europe, Asia, the US, I've never had anyone take a set against me because of what the government's doing. No, they could be right. So maybe deep down they still love us. In my travelling days, which admittedly was quite some time ago, the... Um the, the, the predominant image of Australians was that we just really party hard. Yes, exactly. You know? And uh, at, we've kind of lost mm. that. We, we've abandoned that, uh, that, that self-image. Maybe the world is just trying to work out what, what sort of country we are now. We're certainly not as uh, alcoholic as we used to be. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you've been getting out more often than a lot of us during the lockdown. Yeah, <laughs> We should put the hat round and see if we can fund a remake of Adventures of Barry McKenzie and get that back in the cinemas in Britain to remind them who we are. Isn't it great, Tim, when uh, when wokeism collapses on the woke? And I'm thinking of CNN right now. Yes, the Carnal News Network has been going through a few difficulties of late. I actually trace it all the way back to Peter Fitzsimons. I knew it. Peter, invariably, any cause he supports will collapse and any cause he condemns will triumph. So if you work backwards through all of CNN's troubles, looking for the root cause, well, first of all, you've got Jeff Sucker, the boss, resigning this week or last week um, after an affair with a, a senior colleague that wasn't revealed, which apparently is the rules these days. You've got to fill out form 37b and have it have it double stamped by someone in hr and then you can carry on and apparently if you, like, i'm not sure how the process works then you have a tiff of, of, of hr got to know about this if you're not talking <laughs> or you get you know someone unfriends you on facebook hr anyway he's been yeah so he's um he's resigned he was going to go anyway because the ratings are down 90 percent uh, there's been two senior producers who've been charged or are under investigation for pedophilia. One of their, their senior legal analysts, Jeff Tubin, has now become a verb after his uh, a Zoom call. He, he thought he'd um, turned the screens off when he began um, treating his body like an amusement park. But they welcomed him back because you know, that's acceptable behaviour at CNN. In fact, it's at, the, it's at the shallow end of the crime pool. Uh, they've had an, a, another presenter is um, under investigation for sexual assault of a waiter. And uh, they've got numerous other issues, all in that sort of thing. But you keep going back and back and back. When did this all happen? When did this curse first begin? And then you find two tweets from Peter Fitzsimons. One of them saying that Andrew Cuomo, then the governor of New York, was singularly impressive in his work. Well, of course... He got caught up in a sex scandal. His brother, who works for CNN, had to was was fired, which began all of this CNN trouble. He was fired because it turned out he'd colluded with his brother to um, present, a, in a PR sort of way, the best possible uh, spin on his, uh, on his on the accusations he faced. So, okay, Fitzy's Fitzy's um, con- condemned Cuomo, and and it's gone through CNN. But the other most damning line from Fitzsimons was, I find CNN fantastic. Oh. And that, that was two years ago, and it's been <laughs> literally downhill ever since. They've lost 80, 90% of their audience. They've lost all their senior staff. More to come. I- it's guaranteed there's going to be more, more to follow. Hopefully that potato-headed chap, Brian Stelter, he'd, he'd be... Um, 
he'd be a net gain if they got rid of him. They could just run a test pattern. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well done, Fitzy. You've killed them. You've killed CNN. Great work, son. Keep it up. Let's hope he never becomes a fan of the six o'clock swill. Uh, I'll pay him trouble. money um, to say he hates the show. I bet he hates Joe Rogan. Oh, he would. Yeah, because um, Rogan could, could speak in proper sentences and doesn't overuse commas. He'd be on Neil Young's side for sure. Tim, I, I was surprised to find uh, you reminded me of this uh, earlier today that I have something in common. With Grace Tame, Grace Tame, the master of the scowl. Yes, and it's not just your scowl, which is impressive in and of itself. I mean, it's not it's not tame league. She could scowl for Australia, that lass. But uh, yeah, you have a um, you have a collarbone injury. I do. I didn't share this. And now, so does Grace. She had a, I think it was a bicycle accident, and um, unfortunately, she's hurt herself. I mean, it, you know, it was a nasty picture of a uh, uh, terrible graze. On a shoulder, and also apparently a snapped collarbone, which is a, mm. evidently, as uh, Eula Vernick, uh, quite quite the common um, outcome from a a, a bicyclist uh, tarmac interface. It is. So it wasn't from meeting the prime minister, Nick. No, I I broke my collarbone four times, or rather two times each, and um, most recently, and I thought this was so terribly unfair. Christmas morning, riding cycling to church with my wife sedately i don't know not too sedately and uh, we hit those wretched tram tracks in george street that uh, that the clover moore is so proud of the lord mayor sorry sorry you you, you hit some wretched tramps that's what i heard it as what a couple of winos you, you've run over them yeah okay. and then the tram tracks so i spent christmas christmas day in accident and emergency with a polystyrene cup with ice in it and then i had to battle to try and find a surgeon to fix the blooming thing because it's really painful until you get a pin in it but um, look it's okay now but look I, I I think it all stems from this real aversion to saying happy Christmas you know nobody would say happy Christmas to you anymore instead they say enjoy your break <laughs> and I think that's what happened I was jinxed from that point on absolutely I, um, I used to work at, at the old truth newspaper in Melbourne and uh, one of our columnists was uh, uh uh, Australian rules football legend named Jack Dyer. And uh, we didn't see a lot of him. He, uh, his column was filed remotely. He was well ahead of his time, Jack. But he, um, he would turn up to Christmas parties in the office. And uh, by this stage, he was a very old man, but uh, you know, he still had a, an impressive physical bearing about him. But uh, one, we had a new staffer, a chap who'd come from, uh, from the UK, and he had no idea who Jack Dyer was. And he was wondering why this little old man had so many people hanging off his words and gathering around him. And I said, that's one of the toughest men ever to play Australian rules football. Legend has it that he's broken more collarbones than any other player. And this English English chap looked at him and said, he doesn't look like he's done too much damage to himself. And I'm like, oh, baby. Other peoples, you fool. <laughs> well, look, um, uh, you can email us, of course. You can email us at nick at bcc.com uh, and we're only one email between the three of us. That's all we can afford, but we'll share it round. And um, I said, well, we should big shout out for, for Gibbo. Yes, Gibbo is our, uh, our our freelance sound engineer at the moment. Uh, his work I can uh, recommend to anybody in the, um, in the musical or speech realms who needs some technical advice. Uh, it is supplied uh, uh, brilliantly and with uh, with a great deal of charm. I'm not saying that just because he's, he's, he's actually grabbed my forearm and is twisting it violently as we speak. Thank you for all your positive comments. And we do, 
We do think more people deserve to listen to this show. We shouldn't just keep it to ourselves. So please give it five stars. Uh, tick the like button. Send it to your friends, whether you listen on iTunes or Spotify uh, or anything else. Just just please just share it because we think the fun needs to be shared around. Anything more I need to say? Um, I think that's just about it for this week, Swill. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Cheers. See you, mate. Thanks, guys. Thank you.